This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. Last week, Lord Wolfson, the boss of Next and Brexiteer, said that the government needs to allow more foreign workers into the UK to solve the labour shortages. Is he right? Fraser Nelson wrote in his column for The Telegraph this week that he is not right, whereas Kate Andrews agrees with him. They both join me now. Kate, for those who didn't get to read your column in The Telegraph, does Lord Wolfson have a point? Absolutely. Thanks, Natasha. I've basically said that what Laura Wilson said in his interview to the BBC, which is essentially that Britain is in desperate need of workers who will fill in the gaps in the labour market, is not only correct, but I think he's right to point to the fact that the crackdown on low-skilled immigration to come to the UK has proved a problem. The comments of Lord Wilson were made by lots of business leaders across the sector at the start of 2020 when the government was redrafting its immigration laws ahead of its formal exit from the European Union. And at the time, the former Home Secretary, Priti Patel, basically came back and said, well, that's just too bad. Do more. Pay the native workers more. Invest in them more. Upskill them more. You're just going to have to bear the brunt of this. I think what we have now, though, is almost three years of evidence that Well, what Priti Patel said was, I think, politically very savvy, and there is absolutely no doubting that the decade previous of stagnant wages and low investment in workers has really been unfair and hurt uh, British Native workers, that our record high vacancies are, in part, due to the fact that we have cut off any pathway for low-skilled migrants to come to the UK that have, for a very long time now, been a vital part of this economy. And I don't believe that there is evidence to suggest that their role in the economy has been hurting Native workers. If anything, there's a lot of global evidence to suggest otherwise. Maybe we can come to some of the details of that. But I don't want to pit Native British workers and low-skilled foreign workers against each other. That is not how we're going to get out of this inflation-driven mess that we're in now. Fraser? What Kate doesn't mention is the fact that we've got 5.3 million people in out-of-work benefits in Britain. That is a staggering fact. To me, the biggest, most scandalous fact of British public life. So when you think of our great cities, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, in each of these cities, 20% of the workforce, 20% is an out-of-work benefits. Now, in each of these cities, you've got people like Lord Wilson saying he wants more people to come along into his factory. Can we please get more immigrants? And we as a country are failing to do something pretty basic and pretty important. We're failing to use the massive number of vacancies, 1.2 million, twice as many, by the way, as there were on average in the last decade. We're failing to use this record number of vacancies to reduce the unemployment pile. And if we can't do that, then we are failing economically, and I'd argue morally as well, as a country. Now, this is where Kate and I disagree. We're both um, free marketeers, we're both liberals, but we, it turns out, have rather a different vision, basically about the importance of a nation-state. Now, I would say that I'm a free marketeer in the context of a nation-state, because I believe that, for example, when you get lords of the realm like Lord Wilson, who's complaining that he hasn't got enough workers, he should be made to do either one of two things. 
he should be made to automate so he doesn't need as many humans in the warehouse. Now, that sounds a bit cruel. Surely the machines will render people unemployed. But Britain's got the opposite problem. We've got too many people doing jobs that robots should be doing and machines should be doing. We are, by some measures, the least automated country in the OECD because for a long, long time, our employers have been able to use low-skilled workers. That saved them the cost of automating. Automation moves humans further up the value chain. It pushes them into better-paid jobs, higher-skilled jobs. That's what we badly need. So that's what should be happening in the warehouses. Simon Wilson doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to spend the money. Well, tough. He should be forced to. The second thing is to pay people better wages for doing this. I went on the next website yesterday to to have a look at the sort of jobs which he's complaining he can't get enough Brits to do. And one of them was working in a warehouse next outside of Rotherham. Now, the job said that you needed to be the equivalent, it was saying, of walking five miles a day, pretty hefty, being on your feet all day in the shift and constantly lifting things from conveyor belts, having a shift that starts at five in the morning, so you need your own transport. And for this, you get the princely sum of £9.80 an hour, just 30p more than the minimum wage. Now, if he can't find people queuing up to take these jobs, and he's finding they'd rather instead go and work for Asda, which has got more in the same Rotherham, has also got lots of jobs at a more competitive rate, far less arduous work, I'm afraid to say that rather than plead and beg the government to send him more polls from Gdansk to come and work for his too low wages doing jobs that should anyway be done by computers uh, machines. He should be raising the salaries. Now, what I just cannot understand is at what point in this country we, we, we thought it was even morally acceptable to let big titans of industry say that we demand that you give us more immigrants because we refuse to pay decent wages for our staff. Now, we in this country, again, it just drives me mad, that we always block out huge chunks of people from the conversation. In this case, the block which Kate didn't mention were the 5.3 million unemployed. But there's also those who leave school age 16 with very low skills. What are they going to do? If they want to make a job for themselves in manual labour, as, as my dad did when he left school at 15, you need to have respectable jobs opening to them. You should be able to have an economy where you can provide for yourself, provide for your family, using entry-level skilled work, and that needs to pay decently. And I think it's high time, high time, that the care homes and the warehouses started offering decent salaries. Two points, if I may, Natasha. The first is that Fraser says I I don't talk about the rising number of working-age people on out-of-work benefits, and of course I do in the column. And I note that immigration should not be some means through which we gloss over the number of people who deserve the dignity of getting back into work in the UK. Now, there are lots of reasons, many of which I think are still being discovered as, as to why those people are off work. I think furlough played a big role there in sending people out of the office. Many have never come back. Long-term sickness, mental health issues, the NHS waiting list in which people cannot get treatment for these things is all contributing. I do not believe that this is a real trade-off that's being painted here by Fraser, that you either get those people back into work or you bring low-skilled migrants who are knocking down the door, desperate to come work, to pay tax, to come here legally and say, you know, you can come in. I I don't believe that that is a meaningful trade-off. 
The second point I'd like to make is slightly more broad. Fraser talked about the nation state, and I'm going to single in on the word state there. I think Fraser, somewhat surprisingly to me, has fallen into the trap of thinking that the state can play a meaningful role here. I think in terms of universal credit and making it pay to work, it certainly can, but it pretty much stops short there. When we look at the many, many skills schemes that have been brought in by government over the past decade, when we look at their attempt to boost apprenticeships, all of these schemes fail spectacularly. Nobody out there believes that the state is meaningfully going to retrain you and upskill you. And when you promise them they will, they laugh in your face and they don't believe you for good reason. When the government got involved with the apprenticeship levy, the number of apprenticeships in this country actually dropped. The state is not good at dictating what the markets need. Businesses are. And actually, in our immigration system now, and this has been true for a very, very long time, there is acknowledgement from the state that the role of low-skilled migrants is, is really important in the economy because we have the occupational shortages list, which allows for hundreds of people to come to this country, thousands of people to come for hundreds of kinds of jobs if it's considered to be a shortage. But that in and of itself is implying that the government knows what the economy needs, that the government is predicting in the medium term what businesses are going to need. And of course they can't do that. Of course they fail spectacularly. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons we have this almost record high level of job vacancies right now is because we weren't expecting the mass exodus of up to a million migrants during COVID, many of whom have not been able to come back under the new rules. Again, you know, the government can't predict these things, right? These are these are events that impact the market and businesses are best placed to solve it. And I think this idea that Fraser has that if only the state were a bit more proactive about people out of work, then this would all be solved is a rather naive one that tends to be toted by leftists. I'm almost done. And Fraser mentioned that I'm trying to leave out this chunk of people, this important group of people who have not found their way back into work. I'm not ignoring them. I, I do acknowledge them. I don't agree with Fraser's trade-off, but I think Fraser is ignoring the fact that apart from these occupational shortages that the government has dictated and don't always reflect the reality of the market, the group I think he's leaving out are the desperate to work and to make a life for themselves, so-called low-skilled migrants who have been cut off from coming to the UK. The Boris Johnson, Pretty Patel immigration changes essentially cut off a pathway, a legal pathway for low-skilled migrants. And I think that was a fundamental mistake and not allowing them essentially any pathway to come here if they don't fit very specific descriptions of the occupational shortages list. I think it's hurting the British economy and it's making us poor. I actually used to see the world as Kate does, and a very sort of relatively small number of things I've changed my mind on in a big way over the years, and this is one of them. Now, I can remember back in, I don't know, 2005, that I was arguing pretty much for the abolition of border control. I was a complete liberal on that. I believed in immigration rejuvenates and strengthens countries. I still very much believe that. I am very pro-immigrant, and I think our country has been massively enriched by the, the millions who've, who've come here. And I think mass immigration has been a huge success for Britain. So I haven't resolved from any of that. But I did change my mind on a couple of areas. One is that John Crudders, Labour MP, took me to visit his Dagenham constituency and introduced me to some BNP voters. And his point was to show me that they were not the racists of caricature. 
that was quite difficult for me. I'd never properly met any sort of people who would vote for a party that I certainly regarded as fascist. But he was saying, listen to what they're saying. They've got complaints here about public service supply, about um, whether they can get a council house, whether they can get an appointment, whether their kids are going to get a good education, given that they're in a class full of um, other kids for whom English is not the first language. These are normal everyday complaints, and they deserve to be listened to with respect, not called racists. And I think Curtis was right about that. And I think it took the rest of the political world quite a while to accept that he was. I think Brexit recalibrated, I think, the national debate for a whole bunch of people saying, look, we have got some real concerns about the direction globalisation is going, and these are not racist concerns, and we want you to listen to us. And I think that parties of left and right now do listen to these people as a result of the Brexit vote. That's why Britain is almost alone in Europe and having no populist party, either in parliaments or in the opinion polls. But the other reason that I changed my mind was... I'm a former retail correspondent, former politics correspondent. I did, I've covered the fashion world, and, uh, and I met the boss of a very big fashion chain in Britain who was saying that when he wants to get workers for his uh, factory, he doesn't bother with the British unemployed because it's a lot of hassle to get somebody who's been unemployed for six months, a year, and expect them to show up every morning because they just don't. They're not in the habit of it. It's too much work, so he doesn't bother. He picks up the phone to Gdansk, and then there is an agency in Poland that will fly him over the number of workers he needs for the duration of time that he needs them. Isn't this great, he was saying. Globalization now allows me to fill these labor shortages very quickly, very easily, and very reliably by being able to take from a country vastly poorer than Britain their workers who will come and do their jobs and will save me the hassle of having to deal with these Brits. But I'm wondering, Kate, what your reaction would be, because I suspect this is the point in where we differ. To me, this was capitalism gone very, very wrong because a company was skipping over what I would regard as its duty to the unemployed of the same country. The social fabric of a nation state was being torn and mass immigration was allowing this guy to import people and not do what I believe a company should be doing, which is the hard graft and the hard work of getting domestic unemployed back into the market. But do you see this with horror as I did? I see half of that story as a horror, Fraser, but I don't see it as a failure of capitalism. I see it as a failure of the welfare state. The fact that a, you know, assuming in that scenario, right, that that British worker was simply choosing not to show up to work in the morning, that there wasn't a health condition or an underlying condition that was stopping them. I see that as an absolute tragedy that the British system has allowed that person to fall into what I think is an extremely unhealthy and certainly unproductive trap of feeling like they don't have to show up to work in the morning. And then what I see is a story about the market, as it almost always does when it is allowed to do in a free society, filling in the gaps. And I see a lot of horror, as I said, in the first half of that story. I see a positive story for the migrants that you describe being flown in to get to work for a much higher wage than they would otherwise get to be able to send that money home to potentially start to carve a life here in the UK or back at home for themselves with those profits. I see nothing wrong about that. In fact, I think that is a wonderful story for the other side of the ledger. The point that you make that's so important, Fraser, is that we don't forget the first half of that story. But to me, that is a deep failure of the state. It is not a failure of the market. 
but to me, that is what's happening right now. We are forgetting the first. When you see Lord Wilson saying, I can't get my workers, therefore give me immigrants, he is effectively writing off 13% of the workforce. Now, everybody knows, it's not just Britain, the, the British welfare state that's a problem here. Anybody who has not worked for a very long time will typically find it difficult to get back into the habit. This is the real politique of the welfare to work. There are lots of um, agencies who work with and support people. And you need to be hard-headed about this. Now, I'll give you another story I was writing about when I was a business correspondent. This was um, in the late 90s, and it was about a bus company that was so short of bus drivers, it was having to go around these um, homeless hostels, pretty much drying out alcoholics, helping them rehabilitate, with an aim to them becoming bus drivers afterwards. At the time, there was sort of shock at such a, a person was allowed to become a bus driver, but I saw it the other way around. I thought, this is why I'm a free marketeer. This is exactly how I think an economy should function. You've got a rising economy and a company that is taking so many extra steps to get people back to work. Now, you, you talk, Kate, about how the government apprenticeship schemes don't really work, about schemes to upskill workers don't really work. I agree with all of that. What works most of all is when companies are training people for real jobs that they really need. So there you had the bus companies doing what I think ought to be done. The invisible hand of the market was working in making forcing these bus companies to, to look at a section of society that, of course, in an ordinary healthy market, they would have not really looked at. But when jobs are tight, they're forced to take extra steps to hire, retrain, even dry out former alcoholics. Now, that story would be impossible post the world of mass migration. And that's what we've lost now. A sense of people like Lord Wilson taking those extra steps to go to the unemployed of Rotherham and doing whatever it takes to coach, lure, perhaps even bribe people back to the workplace. Now, again, the difference between perhaps you and me here is that you say you say to me, Fraser, what you're describing if he has to pay more, that means you're going to pay more for your next T-shirt, and that means the prices go up, and that means GDP gets slow. Now, perhaps it does. I would happily make the trade-off. I would make the trade-off for higher inflation, and that means fairer wages for the lower paid, and a society which more people believe, an economy which more people believe is working for them, rather than for somebody else. And that takes us back to the problem of Brexit. The voters of this country correctly discerned an economic model where people were talking about a global economic network and they were ignoring people who were undervalued and overlooked at home. Brexit was, if nothing else, an instruction not just to the politicians but to the, also the employers of the country to start rebuilding that social fabric. I think the nation state has got a social element. People look to it for support. And I think if an economy is going to be healthy... It's an economy where all of these, these ties are healthy and they're there. And the greater these ties, the more employers are forced to go into the depths of unemployed communities and work out what they can do to turn the unemployed into workers, the healthier we're going to become. If you give them a shortcut where they pick up the phone and get guys flown in, I guess the and perhaps difference between us two is whether we... Th I think there's a far higher moral obligation on the unemployed of one's own country than there is to be unemployed of another country. Now, that might be quite nationalistic of me, but again, that's just how I see the my definition of a free market within the nation-state. Where I tend to put emphasis on moral obligation is to the poorest, and that is 
within one's own very local community, within one's country, but also the world. And as I said before, when when people who are coming from poorer countries are knocking down the door to come here and be productive, I see that as a net benefit morally and economically. Fraser, you made a lot of my secondary points for me. I mean, to say you'd be happier with higher inflation when it's already in double digits is quite the statement. But that actually wasn't the argument I was going to make. I think the really tough truth that you don't address in your column is that for the past nine, 10 months, we have had quite an explicit example of those incentives being racked up for native workers and they still haven't taken them. So for example, with the huge shortages that we've had in hospitality between February 2021 and February 2022, it's been estimated, and I took one of the more conservative estimates, that when the salary for for jobs increased by up to 12% for certain jobs, I mean, bartenders were being paid 8% more on the year than they were before and yet those vacancies remained at record highs. We lost 60 million pounds worth of produce in the fields this summer, even though farmers were offering up to 60% more per hour. I mean, they were paying people 20, 30 quid an hour to come pick the produce, to pack the produce, to transport the produce, and they still couldn't find workers. Employers in many industries across the sector have been offering significantly higher pay. And the truth is a lot of natives at the moment still don't want to take those jobs. And I think there is a wide, wide range of reasons why they don't want to take those jobs. I suspect one of them is that there are just certain jobs they don't want to do. And if there are other people around the world who are desperate to do them, I just think it's I think it's quite ludicrous not to offer them the opportunity to do so. I think you're honestly like cutting off your own economic nose to... Uh, that metaphor is not going to work, but you get what I mean. There, there's absolutely nothing productive. You were not helping anybody. You were harming everybody by keeping those workers out. And again, what you speak to is far more of a cultural problem, I think, and a societal problem that we should all feel responsible for. And I agree with you that where businesses are at their best or they're going into the local community and working as hard as they can to get the people who would often be overlooked into productive jobs, you know, helping them to achieve better outcomes. But I think to try to pit those native workers against those foreign workers is simply wrong. I I don't think that the economy is structured that way. Again, I, I don't think there's any evidence in the medium term that immigrant workers are hurting native wages. If anything, there's a, some evidence worldwide that they actually increase their wages as well as everybody becomes more productive. I don't understand why we have to pit one against the other. That that to me is like my biggest question to you is you can focus on getting those native workers back into the workforce, but with a record number of job vacancies, why are you so opposed to those low-skilled foreign workers through a legal pathway through a business coming in to do that work too. Because if you do that, you take the easy option and rather than the harder and more necessary option of increasing the wages or automation. We know, for example... I've just pointed out where wages have gone up. I've just pointed out where employers have tried to do this. And it hasn't worked. I humbly submit they haven't gone up enough. I reject the idea that British workers don't want to pick fruit. I've picked fruit in a former life. I was one of these people. I've emptied bins. I've sorted mail. I've done a whole bunch of of manual labor jobs and i think the people who do that right now but you can do that you can have dignity sure you might stink at the end of the day after emptying bins but you at least earn decent money for it and i think that right now if you if you compare their our fruit industry to those of the rest of developed countries you'll find our fruit industry has not 
automated in the way they have because they've always they're like send us the Ukrainians or whatever that's what we were doing recently and um, before the war and they've always relied on cheap labor I'm sorry that's got to come to an end you've got to invest in technology and you've got to pay people now you're saying they got paid eight percent twelve percent more with inflation 60 percent more in some cases right but you were talking about that the waiters etc with inflation running at 10 percent maybe they should be getting paid more maybe they shouldn't be getting by 20 percent more right now until you actually raise wages to a limit where people want to bite then you've not found the equilibrium and for what 20 years we've had a situation where foreign-born workers have accounted for two-thirds of the increase in jobs over the last two decades that's quite a lot we have grown used to just importing people rather than training them to using low-skilled workers rather than automation and to fundamentally undervaluing a huge section of our society and right now it's worse than undervaluing and we're overlooking them completely now, because I'm generally speaking, I am pro-immigrant, I'm internationalist, there's a lot about Brexit, which I didn't like. But fundamentally, I want a country that will work, an economy that will work for those who most need the economic help. And for that, they're going to have to be subjected to the pain of having to think very clearly and cleverly about how they can lure more people who are unemployment into work. A society, if our economy can't do that, then really, what is the point? Are we really going to permanently write off 13% as the kind of roadkill of globalization? That is not a path which I think any democracy can take. And it's not something which any free marketeer should advocate. I guess this is where we just fundamentally disagree because we both completely agree that the simple act of, of showing up to work is, is a dignified act. And I, I think we both agree that those people on out-of-work benefits, if they're in a position, a physical and mental position to do so, should absolutely be getting back to work. I, I don't think you've presented any evidence that allowing more low-skilled foreign migrants into the UK to work legally is actually going to hinder that. But I think if I'm being honest, Fraser, with all due respect, you're slightly out of touch with economic reality if you are seriously talking about how wages should be going up right now by 20, 25%. For certain sectors, absolutely. I, I think that like the past month has been a lesson in economic reality. And I just think like that's the kind of stuff that you hear from people who don't have any sense of, of the very tight margins that businesses are very often operating within. So, I mean, you know, it would be great if everybody could have a 25% pay raise. I think everybody. We're talking those £9.80 an hour, those, the, the carers. I'll give you a biggest example of that. People who deserve a 20% rise I right now the are the carers. I think the industry should, should be paid so much better than it is. But 20% again, better? But this, That's what I'd say. This comes back to a societal attitude to, to what we value, and we often value the wrong things. But it's very, very clear that I also value the opportunities for those low-skilled migrants outside. I appreciate you're putting more emphasis on the native population. I don't think they have to be put against each other. I'm sorry you do. Very interesting conversation. Fraser Nelson, Kate Andrews, thank you very much for joining me and thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs>